Welcome to Northgate Bible Chapel Online. Thanks for checking out our podcast, where you can listen to our latest sermons, filled with teaching, encouragement, and hope from God's Word. So whether you're outdoors, in the car, or just poured some coffee, let's dive into today's message. Good morning. Uh, Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 13. It's nice to be home again. Um, It's been a couple of months since we've been here, or at least on a Sunday morning. Uh, So we're glad to, to be back with our family here at Northgate. Uh, Continuing in the series uh, in the book of Romans, we are now getting into Romans chapter 13. Um, I was talking with Isaac the other night about it a little bit, and I kind of feel like, um, you know, sometimes you've got to walk on the tightrope, like you're just trying to balance along the tightrope. We get into some of these uh, topics that can be sensitive and uh, have different perspectives, and trusting that the Lord will speak uh, well uh, through this passage on the things that we need to uh, take from it. So anyways, let's start by reading Romans chapter 13, just the first seven verses for today. Beginning in verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment to themselves. For for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because, excuse me, for because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. Uh, And we want to acknowledge that at the very start of this message or any message that Uh, We want to hear from you the truth from your word Uh, and the truth uh, that was communicated to to the Romans back when Paul originally wrote this letter, you leading him by your spirit, is true for us today as well. Uh, So, Father, we pray for wisdom in understanding this truth and in the application of this truth. Uh, So, Father, we just commit this time to you, pray for the leading of your spirit to speak exactly what you want spoken to the hearts of each one. We pray in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So first I want to talk about it a little bit contextually, where we're moving here from the last chapter in particular. So Romans chapter 12, as we're familiar with already, uh, repeated each of the last several weeks. Starting in verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you make your bodies, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So first, uh, just this idea that we are living in submission to God. Uh, Make your bodies, present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is us surrendering ourselves. I think we've heard that phrase over the last several weeks, that we would surrender ourselves to God first, 
Secondly, uh, through the chapter 12, he then talks about the gifts that God has given, the gifts given by the Spirit of God to be able to serve the people of God and really the people of the world. We are going to have gifts given by the Spirit in service of the people of this world. The end of chapter 12, last week, it was focused on loving our enemies, blessing those who persecute you, and doing everything that's within your power to live peaceably with all men. We had great discussions on Wednesday night of what that looks like, like the practical outworking of being a living sacrifice and how it relates to living with other people. So in light of that, that leads us to what is our testimony as believers as it relates to how we interact with the government, the governing authorities that are around us. Does it mean that it's just sort of this blind and unlimited sort of uh, obedience and, and honor and respect or whatever word you want to use there? This, uh, I'll use the word submission to the governing authorities. Or are there times in which we don't do that? So before we even go there, I want to think through just for a moment about the fact that God has given us four different domains throughout the course of Scripture. Uh, and when I say domain, I want to be careful to, to not like uh, think too much of that, but four areas in which we acknowledge a measure of God giving authority over mankind to exercise some measure of authority and responsibility. Uh, first is personally. Uh, mankind, each of us individually, become accountable to God uh, because we were made in the image of God and we were made with the purpose and intent to submit to the Creator. Uh, we've talked through that before. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, when God gave mankind dominion over the whole earth, it said over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the cattle on the ground, over the beasts that walk on the field, dominion over everything except one thing, ourselves, right? So the dominion that we have in regard to our personal dominion, I'm, I want to say that the focus of that really is on the responsibility and accountability and ultimately in submission to God. The second one would be within the context of the family, that God has established families. We see that also from the very beginning of the creation account, first starting with Adam and Eve together, and then from them, children coming out, uh, and that the father, the husband, would be the head of the wife, and the parents, the head over the children. And there is a family order. There's a family governance. Uh, the wives are told in Ephesians 5 and other places to submit themselves uh, to their own husbands. Children are told to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. And there's a promise, a blessing for doing so. Um, so we have personal order, family order. Thirdly, we're going to have church order. Uh, God has established the church. I will build my church, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 18, dealing with the, context, the, the specific context of church discipline, taking it to the church, and it says where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst. So Matthew 16, dealing with this idea of the universal church. I'm building my church, this whole universal thing. Matthew 18 can bring us to this idea of the local expression of the church. Uh, so then we have church order. Um, and we see through the New Testament that God has raised up, ordained elders as under shepherds to the chief shepherd to have responsibility and accountability on the behalf of the saints. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey those who, uh, who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And then fourthly, the last one is the civil domain, the civil sphere that we are operating in. And I'm not going to say too much more about that at this moment, because that's what this whole topic is about, the whole section. So we'll be coming back to that. 
one of the things you all have probably heard me say before, or maybe not all of you, but one thing that I say quite frequently, and I want to start with this as a reminder, no one is in authority that is not under authority. Like, that is just an underlying truth according to the Word of God. We see that here in this passage, Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, where he says, For there is no authority except from God. He's the one that put in order the authority that's here in Romans chapter 13. Uh, you see that with the Lord Jesus himself when he was talking to Pilate, Pontius Pilate. Uh, then Pilate said to him in John chapter 19, Are you not speaking to me? Because he was being silent. Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? I mean, the arrogance of mankind <laughs> as seen in Pilate. Do you not know that I have power over you? <sighs> you... Jesus answered, could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So all authority in this life only comes under the authority of God. No one is in authority that's not under authority. What does that look like? Well, I go back to that personal, our sort of personal domain and responsibility. We do not have authority of our own lives. We cannot declare ourselves to be something that we're not. Uh, we cannot decide for ourselves what our life is going to look like when it goes against what God would have. We cannot do that. We don't have personal dominion and say over that. We are responsible. The decisions that we make personally are under the authority of God within the context of the family. Uh, is it possible that you could have a tyrannical father who is not leading his family well? Absolutely. I mean, we see abuse in this world all around us, and that's because people are not placing themselves under the authority of God and ruling as such. So a father in a Christian home, for example, ought to be uh, loving and serving his family in such a way because he is under the authority of God. He's not tarantial. It's not a tyrant that we're looking for here. It's one that's willingly submitting himself to the Father, to God, in order to then rule well. In the church context, the same thing. I already referenced them to be the under-shepherds. Uh, the elders of the local church do not have the authority to do anything that God hasn't given them responsibility and accountability to. Uh, and we can see all of these sort of things throughout uh, all of Scripture. Uh, first of all, um, let's think through this idea of government now and moving us into there and how we see government being played out throughout the Old Testament and as we enter into the New Testament. So if you would hold to some sort of uh, dispensational view, in other, uh, in other words, a way to look at and understand scripture of how God was working through different periods of time uh, throughout the Bible. Uh, the third one that is often referred to as the one that's called human government. Uh, so the first one was innocence. So Adam and Eve were guilty, even though they were innocent. They had no sin, and yet when the serpent came, they did sin, and they responded accordingly. Uh, the second one was human conscience, uh, and what happened as a result of human conscience is Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel. And then you see in Noah, or not in Noah chapter 6, but in Genesis chapter 6, at the time of Noah, uh, no one could do that which was right. Everybody only did that which was evil continually. And after the flood, there was a third one that was entered in that we often will refer to as the one of human government. So it didn't work that you were up, to, you were innocent, that you had no sin, like you, you went against God. And then secondly, your own conscience didn't even allow you to be able to do it. So now this third one, uh, human government, maybe if I start all over with a brand new family and go from there after everything else has been put away, you would think that they would realize, looking back to what happened with the flood and the judgment that had come, that they would say, okay, we are going to follow after God. 
Instead, what you get in Genesis chapter 11, it says, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. It came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Uh, they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So mankind, when they come together, thinking that they know what is best, ultimately would go against God. And so the first sort of institution of human government, you see how mankind will end up going away from God and not submitting themselves under the authority of God. So then the judgment came in because the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. The Lord said, indeed, the people are only one, are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Um, and now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. So in verse 7, he says, Come, let us go down, confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, so what the people said is, let us build this so that we would not be scattered abroad. And then God comes in and says, let us confuse their languages and scatter them abroad. Because when you came together, it actually only produced something that was going against God rather than in submission to God. Now, through the Old Testament, we can see all kinds of wicked kingdoms throughout the Old Testament, yes? We would see that both of those that were not of Israel, but we would also see those <clears throat> within Israel. Uh, but the most perfect example, I think, is Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5. When God had sent Moses and Aaron to deliver the people of Israel, it says this in chapter 5, verse 1, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And you remember what Pharaoh's response was? Who's the Lord? Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So you can see the wicked kingdom is one that did not acknowledge and submit themselves to the God of heaven. And of course, we know what happened through the remainder of the, the Exodus, the book of Exodus, and all that happened in uh, Egypt and how they were destroyed in the Red Sea. And you see all of that being played out, a demonstration of God and his power, his righteousness, his holiness, and all of who he is, and how the whole world ought to be submitting themselves to him. Of course, even Israel themselves, having gone through this great experience of everything that I just described through the Exodus and the destruction of the Egyptians, they themselves would eventually cry out for a king. 1 Samuel chapter 8. All the elders of Israel gathered together. Does that sound familiar? So it's not the whole world gathered together, everybody that existed at that time with the same language, but it says, all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, look, you're old and your sons don't walk in your ways, so make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel, and they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Like this, is, like, this is a key critical point for us to understand. Again, the sovereignty of God, God's rule over the earth, is definitive. This is something that we have to get our minds and our hearts and understand around. Uh, when they were asking for the king, Samuel was offended by this. He was bothered by it. He said, they're not rejecting you. You're simply a servant that's speaking the things that I tell you to speak. They're rejecting me. In other words, the children of Israel never needed a king in this earth, on this earth, because they had one in heaven even as you and I do today. 
we see John in the Revelation who would be reminded of the king that sits on the throne even today. Uh, the vision that Isaiah had in chapter 6 of the one sitting on the throne high and lifted up. Uh, the king still reigns supreme. And this was the king that the children of Israel even rejected. And again, we see that throughout all of Israel's history, so much so that there was a whole book. Uh, so first Samuel, they asked for a king that they may judge uh, them. Well, that's great. They asked for a king to judge them. So what happens in the book of Judges, uh, they were constantly turning away from God. They were going against the things of God and eventually God would raise up a judge or really a deliverer. But then after they would have rest and there would be peace in the land for a period of time, eventually what would happen? They would forget about God and it would say, man did that which was right in their own eyes for their deeds were evil. As a matter of fact, the book of Judges ends with that very phrase, the last verse of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Okay, so this is just a little bit of the backdrop as it brings us to Romans chapter 13. In other words, uh, God had always designed himself to be the king, that mankind as a whole would submit themselves to God and not be going after themselves. That being said, of course, we know that man's fallen nature, our sin that separates us from God, will only ever want to rebel against God. Uh, the idea of submission is not an easy one, is it? I mean, does anybody in here like to submit? Anyway, I was showing a cough, so I don't know what that means. <laughs> She like, no. <laughs> that goes against our very nature. Like, we all ultimately want to be our own king. We want to have control and rule and say and authority over our own lives. So I think as Paul is getting to this, as he's writing to the Romans and reminding them uh, about submitting themselves to authority, it is also with this recognition that that authority, this governmental authority, is ultimately under the authority of God. And God has placed them there. So we read through the verses. So my summary outline uh, for the, this little section here, these seven verses, is simply this. Uh, there's a submission, there's a sphere, and there's a support. So if I can just keep you with those S's, which is a nice change of pace from my normal P's or R's. Uh, so submission, sphere, or the purpose, uh, and the support. So the first two verses, again, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. So every soul, every living being. Would this only be during the time that Paul is writing to the Romans? Or would there be application to us today? Yes. yes, there would be application today, right? Yeah, amen. Like every soul, every living being should subject themselves, submit themselves to the authorities in which they're under. Now, sometimes that's not easy, and I am going to come back to that because I think I might have said this already, but if not, I'm going to say it now. That does not mean blind or unlimited submission. In other words, it doesn't mean that the government says do X, we are to do X, okay? Um, so we're gonna come back to that and we're gonna look at examples both in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament when they did not do the things that they were being commanded to do. But we're gonna come back to that at the end. The context of this from an overall perspective when Paul's writing this is he is dealing with a very interesting rule of the Roman rule over all of the children of Israel, over the Israelites, the Jews. Uh, they had the Jewish governors, they, would even, they were even allowed the Jewish sort of kings, but even all of them were ultimately under the Caesar of the day. At the time of Paul's writing, this was uh, AD 56, in AD 54 is when Nero 
had come into power after Claudius had been there for a number of years. Uh, so then Nero took over. Uh, now, from the research that I've done on Nero, there were some good things that he had done when he first came into power. He was about 16, 17 years old. Uh, he had uh, started to do some building projects and he had apparently made a really good speech about actually using the Senate like they have a Senate. Uh, but then there was also the Caesar. So even though they had a Senate, it might remind some of you like of Star Wars with, uh, what's his name, Palpatine? You had the Senate and then you had Palpatine, uh, who's the whatever you call him. Um, I, yeah, I'm not good on these things. Anyways, Palpatine, who took over and he got the Senate to follow after him. Anyways, this is what was happening in Rome. You had, it was really more of an autocracy, not a democracy. There was a Senate there, but they really didn't have the same sort of level of authority and power that the Caesar would have. And unfortunately, I think even in today's society, we've seen a measure of that, especially over the last four years, when we're no longer just passing laws according to the Senate and the Congress doing so in the US government or even in the state governments, but we now issue executive orders that just make the de de decrees that everybody's supposed to follow after. So I, this is where I'm like walking a little, you know, doing my little trapeze artist here, not trapeze, because that'd be the other thing. Well, I might be hanging from something soon, so uh, my tightrope, that's it, the tightrope. I'm just, I'm just trying to point that out, is that there is, there is a correlation to that idea where somebody comes into power and really their individual power is greater than the power of the masses. And even the Roman government at that time did have a Senate in order to do so. So Paul is writing this in AD 56. Nero had taken over, but just in general, right, if you remember, and the, uh, the whole of the Jewish perspective when Jesus came was that they were gonna, he was going to deliver them from the Roman rule, from the oppression that they were under. That was their whole perspective going into this. So when that didn't happen, they were confused at first. Now the, the gospel goes forward. They have a better understanding of it. But what is our position now to this government? We're being oppressed by this government, and none of that is good. So that plays a backdrop into this. Um, of course, so this is in AD 56-ish when Paul is writing to the Romans. Nero had come in in AD 54. We know later in Nero's life it got even worse for the Christians, especially around the time of the Great Fire in Rome. When that happened, people started accusing Nero of being the one to start the fire. He apparently wanted to build a nice big house and castle, uh, and therefore uh, he caused the fire in order to clear the land to make room for it. That was the accusation. So then when that accusation came, Nero deflected the accusation. He said, no, it's those crazy Christians. They're the ones that did it. And that's what started the severe persecution of the Christians during that time. So even though when Paul's writing this, that sort of thing hadn't fully happened yet, he is writing from the perspective that all of the Caesars, all of these Roman rules, uh, rulers had been in power and they had taken advantage of their power. They weren't operating according to God's rule and to reign, uh, God's rule and reign, and yet we still see Paul writing to them that every soul should be subject or submit to the ruling authorities. Why? Because there is no authority except from God. God puts all the authorities in place, appointed, set in order by God. Uh, that set in order by God there, or the appointed by God at the end of verse 1, very much aligned with the idea of submission or subject to at the beginning of verse 1. Uh, this idea of submission and subjecting to is that you're placing yourself under, and this appointing is setting in order. So they're setting in order, God is set in order, and we just align ourselves with that. In verse 2, it tells us whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God. Do you agree with that? Like generally, right? Like as a parent, you would definitively agree with that if your children were being disobedient. You're not disobeying me, you're disobeying God. 
like your willfulness to go against what I'm telling you as a parent, as long as I'm not telling you that something contrary to God, okay? That is a backdrop to this. But as long as I'm not telling you something that is contrary to God, then when you sin against me, when you disobey me as a child to a parent, then you're actually disobeying God, right? Same context within the local church. As long as the elders, those who are the under shepherds, are not telling us to do something that's against God, then we are to submit ourselves and place ourselves under the authority. Why? Because the ordinance of the authority was one given by God for us to submit ourselves to. Okay, secondly, probably the important thing here for us to understand is the sphere of the governing authorities or the purpose. So verses three and four, for rulers are not a terror to good works. In other words, if you're doing good, they shouldn't be a problem for you. You should just rejoice in the fact that there's governing authorities here, uh, but to evil. So if you're doing evil, then you should be afraid. I like that. Do you, do not, do, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Uh, where is it? Oh, yeah, I like it. The, verse 4. But if you do evil, be afraid. Be very afraid. That's the thing that comes into my mind. Be afraid. Be very afraid. I think the kids would say that to each other sometimes. So if you do evil, you should be afraid. If you do good, you should have nothing to worry about. How do we see this very practically? Well, when you're driving down the street, uh, let's take 390, for example. The speed limit, I think, is 55 miles an hour. And you're driving 55 miles an hour. Are you afraid of the police pulling you over? Not likely. You're walking in freedom. You're, well, you're driving in freedom. You're driving in freedom because you're not afraid of getting pulled over because you're not doing anything wrong. But if you see a cop, what's the first thing you do when you're driving down the highway or any road and you see a police officer? Yeah, 100%, right? Like even when you know you're driving in freedom, you still check just to make sure that your foot didn't go a little bit lower than you expected it to. And you make sure. And then suddenly you see that it's 75. Now what happens? I'm afraid, I'm very afraid. And because Steve's gonna come by and he's gonna pull me over and he's gonna tell me that he needs to give me a ticket. You're gonna be afraid. In other words, I just wanna get this into our heads for a minute. What is the purpose of the authority of the governing authorities? It's to provide protection for those who are doing good and it's going to be punishment for those who are doing evil. How do, how do we as believers in Christ submit ourselves to authority? Do good, like obey the law, like do the things that you need to be able to do. Again, I'm gonna come back to a caveat in which there's times where we may go against that, what the governing authorities are saying, but generally speaking, do good and you will have nothing to be afraid of. If you do evil, then you have something to be afraid of, yes? Now, as one who's doing good, are you glad that there is somebody who's going to administer punishment for those who are doing evil? 100%, so you're driving down the road 55, somebody passes you going 75 and you just saw the cop and you're like, yes, get him. And you can't wait to watch that cop pull out and pull that person over and you're like, yes. And you said that two times, once that you didn't get pulled over and once that they did get pulled over. Or if somebody stole something from you and they were able to identify who stole it and they go to prison because of it. Are you glad that there was punishment or you were able to recoup what you have, right? Like everything that we have, even within the laws of this land, I think if you go to the Supreme Court or if you go to almost any uh, courthouse within our land, what's one of the things they usually have hanging up? Ten Commandments, right? Why? Because it is a reminder that even when this land was developed and the laws were being built, it comes back to these things. Uh, one of the probably, I'm going to assume, like a pretty voluminous thing, while well, the law itself is just crazy. I think I've talked about that before. Uh, but contract law, is con we think, well, that's not going against the Ten Commandments. Sure it is. Like if you break a contract, that's defrauding somebody. 
That would be lying to somebody. That would be breaking the oath and the covenant. Does that go against the character of God of what, should, what we should do? So we see these laws in place for a reason. They protect those who are doing good, and they bring punishment to those who are doing evil. So this is what it is for and how it should be applied for us. Uh, and it specifically says... Those who are doing this, so those who are in authority, governing authority, um, are doing the work of God. I mean, what it says is they're the ministers of God. They're the diakonos, the deacons, the servants of God to be able to do what it is that God would have them to do in providing righteous judgment against that which is evil. Okay, so that's an important thing that we're going to come back to in just a few moments. Number three. Uh, the support, the support of the governing authorities, verses 5 through 7. So 5, therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, in other words, not just because you're afraid of the punishment or what might come, but because of your own conscience sake. To him, uh, James wrote it, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. In other words, the, this idea of the conscience should come in. Why? Because we're submitting ourselves to God. We're submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit working in us. When we know that we ought to be doing good and we're doing evil instead, our conscience should make, make us turn, not the laws of the land. I mean, there are, there are laws in this land that are potentially wicked. But some of those laws are giving access to wickedness, not that we need to do the wickedness, if you know what I'm saying. So uh, you're not doing it just because you're afraid of wrath, but also for your own conscience sake, that the Lord is the one that's leading you and you wanna honor him in all things. Um, so because of this, in verse six, you pay your taxes, for they're God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. So therefore, render uh, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Um, this is a wonderful time of year to talk about paying taxes. And in some cases, you get a refund, which is extremely helpful. Uh, but the responsibility for us to contribute to this for all of these reasons, and we honor, we saw the Lord Jesus do that himself when they had to pay the temple tax, and he himself shouldn't have had to, but instead he goes to tell Peter to go to get the coin out of the fish's mouth in order to be able to pay the tax. Like the Lord himself submitted, to, submitted himself to the authority in which he was under while he was on this earth. Um, now, not blindly, not unlimited, there were also times when he called them the brood of vipers, right? Like he was clear on that as well when things were going against God. So, so it, taxes is an important thing for us to, to hold on to, and we're going to come back to this thought in, toward the end of this message. Um, and rendering, therefore, to all their due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. I think as Christians... We have to be very careful what we say about those in government authorities. Like, we can disagree with policies, we can disagree with practices, we can disagree with perspectives. Uh, there's my three Ps. And um, we can disagree with all of those things. But let's be careful how we're speaking about people in relation to these things. Um, our testimony ought to be to honor God above all of these things, and therefore being careful with what we say and giving honor when honor is due. That doesn't mean you agree with everything, and you can even say some negative things, but respectfully speak about these things. The other thing I want to say here is, um, if I can dive into this for a quick second, because I was thinking about this for earlier, but when you think about those four domains, the personal, the family, the church, and the, the civil, the governmental, uh, sometimes I think we have it backwards. In other words, as believers, our focus should be on our own submission to God, our family second, and the church third, and then the, the civil government should come forth. And sometimes I think we 
put so much focus and emphasis on what's happening in the civil government that we've lost track of the other three, that we haven't placed the appropriate priority. Um, I think over the last four years, we're reaching about a four-year anniversary of when uh, COVID first started and, and the last election cycle was happening. And it was a very trying time for all of us, very stressful trying to figure out how do, what does this mean biblically, all of the different things going on that, that were happening. How do we respond in all of this? And I think we place just way too much focus, if I can say this, on the civil part of this. And we need to be focused on the other three first in this order, personal, family, church, and then civil. And that might come out again in a little bit as well. Okay, now did Paul ever use government for good? Like, did he take advantage of the law in order to be protected as we just talked about? Yeah, like in Acts chapter 22, when he was about to be arrested and they were just going to scourge him, scourge him? And it says, um, as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? So then at the end of verse 29, immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him and the commander was afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him. So you can see Paul even operated in good ways under the law in order to protect. Now, next question, did Paul ever go against the government? Yeah, like there was a time in which it says in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 32, in Damascus, the governor under Ar Aretas, the king was guarding the city of the Damascans with a garrison desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Like, the fact that they were seeking to arrest him did not mean Paul said, okay, I'm ready to go, and he escaped instead. So you see that there are going to be times in which you're, you're obviously respecting and you're taking advantage in a good way of the laws that are there to protect, like Paul did. And then there's other times when you realize that what's happening is not of God, evil, and you're going to turn away from that, and you're going to take advantage of those. Do we see times throughout Scripture in which people went against the law of the land, the civil law? Not, well, we see people going against the law of God all the time, but I mean against the civil law. Do we? Yes. This means yes. Right? Number one, uh, the decree to kill all the firstborn back in Egypt. Right? It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. In Exodus chapter 1 and verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Uh, and I love what their response was when Pharaoh came and asked them about that. What happened? Well, these Hebrew women, they're just strong. They have the babies before we even get there. We can't do anything about it. Was that truthful? No. No. But what's this say in Exodus 1.20? Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. Uh, three examples in the book of Daniel. The first one is when they were first brought into um, Babylon, uh, they were told that they were going to have to eat certain foods. And Daniel and the three friends said, we don't want to. We don't want to eat the king's meat. We want to just be fed on the vegetables. Just give us what we've been having here. And and they went respectfully to the one that was in authority over them and asked, and, and check us, see how we do. And they were fatter than all the rest. So you see that in, in there in Daniel chapter 1. The second time you see it in Daniel is, is with who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. There was the edict coming down from Nebuchadnezzar to bow down at the statue. Uh, and the people went to him and they said, uh, there are certain Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Uh, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. 
So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, like they brought them forward, they were about to throw them into the fiery furnace, and what was their response? O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. Interesting statement, isn't it? Why do they have no need to answer Nebuchadnezzar in this manner? They're obeying God. This law that you've put into place, that you're going to judge me for now, is nothing because it goes against God's law. So we have no need to give you an answer. But if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, an amazing thing, isn't it? to go against what they were going to go against. They stood up and they didn't do what was uh, commanded for them to do, knowing that they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. And they said, no matter what, we're not going to do it. God may choose to deliver us. Either way, he's delivering us from your hand. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. And then the third one, of course, is Daniel. Daniel, uh, when they were trying to trick Daniel, they said the only way that we're even going to be able to get Daniel is because he honors God. The only way we're going to be able to get him is if we put a law into place that would get him to go against God. So they put the law into place to say no one can pray to anybody other than Darius to ask of the king of anything. So Daniel knew the law was written, it says. Uh, in verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. He didn't try to hide it either. How many of you would try to hide it? I'm going to go. Nobody's going to tell me that I can't pray, but I'm going to, you know, I mean, the Lord Jesus talks about going in our closet. So we're going to go into the closet. and We're going to pray in there. No, he made sure that everybody knew that he was going to do this. Why? Because he's not going to bow down to man when the one that he's supposed to bow down to is God. So we see these examples uh, in the Old Testament when people went against whatever the edict was. Likewise, in Acts chapter 5, uh, we see examples in the New Testament. Uh, when they had brought them, speaking of John and Peter, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you? Is there a difference between strictly command and command? Anyways, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God and not man, and not man. Civil disobedience. Now, this is the tightrope, and maybe some of this is conscience issues, which might be why we go from chapter 13 to chapter 14. Each one regards a day as differently than another day. Are there some conscience issues? Maybe for some of these things. And I think I'll just leave it at that regarding that. Are there sometimes conscience issues? In other words, we might have some believers that think strongly on one side of something when it comes to governmental rule and others that think differently on those things. And maybe we do leave some of those things up to people's conscience. But when it is something that goes specifically against us and our own relationship with God, being under his accountability and response authority, uh, when it comes to anything that would go against our family, which is under God's accountability and authority, or when it comes to the local church, and it's under God's accountability and authority. What are we going to do next time? Next time we have situations like we did four years ago. How do we respond in these times? And I'm going to leave you to think on that because in this room there could be various opinions about what that means and looks like. The last thing I want to close with this uh, in verse 7 where it says, Therefore render to all their due is this story, not this story, this account from Matthew 22. 
The Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him, speaking of the Lord Jesus and his talk. And they sent to him their disciples and the, with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrite? Show me the tax money. So they brought him in denarius and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. So on this coin was an image and description, inscription of Caesar. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What's God's image and inscription on? Us. We are made in the image of God. And yeah, our sin took us away. Like, so apart from Christ, we're not operating according to and under the authority and responsibility and accountability, but we are made in the image of God. Render unto God the things that are God's, which is us, personally, in our families, in the local church, and even as it relates to how we would interact and be a testimony with the government, civil authorities in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Um, I wanna say we thank you that we have to grapple with some of these things for the practical application of how we apply these in the context in which we live today. But we thank you for your truth. Uh, we thank you that you ultimately are the one in authority over this whole world. Um, and that we have the privilege to submit ourselves. Father, we pray that you would help us to do so, to be submissive to you in our personal lives and our families uh, in this local church context. Um, we pray that we would honor you in how we would submit ourselves to the government, but not allowing the government to rule over us and cause us to do things that would be against you. Uh, so, Father, we do just pray for wisdom in these things, and we commit all this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.